the beginning of the Advent season. If you're not sure what Advent is, it's a Latin word that means um, coming, if you will, or arrival. <clears throat> it is the time that the church, well, the wreath was itself established about the 1500s. Uh, the church used this as a symbol of recognizing the eternal value of God and the coming of Christ. And uh, the candles certainly represent who Christ is. In fact, uh, the purple ones represent his royalty. In fact, there's a, I should just tell you this, Moira did a great job in putting together a representation of everything that the, the candles and the wreath uh, symbolize. And so I'd encourage you to pick up one of those. There's a copy of them laying right here on the front seat. But uh, just understand that today, even though we're in November, is the beginning of the Advent season. And so if you're not sure what it is, it's just that, as I mentioned. It is a time where the church is anticipating the birth of Christ or celebrating the birth of Christ. But not just that. <clears throat> if you listen to the word, as I was mentioning just a second ago, arrival, that's the coming of Jesus, but then also the first time. But then there is a second coming of Jesus. He's going to be coming back. And the prophets have foretold this, not just his first coming, but the coming of him again. In fact, let me read to you from Isaiah chapter 11, and you'll see both of these recognized by Isaiah. First, in the first few verses here of his first coming, Isaiah writes, A shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. There's his lineage there. And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. Now, if you notice right there, beginning in chapter uh, verse 5, there is a switch that Isaiah prophesies about with the second coming during the time of the millennium. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play with the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal of the peoples or for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. And so foretold many, many, many centuries ago, of even the coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. How exciting. Couldn't be more exciting, right? Amen? Are you with me this morning? Okay, just want to make sure. This is exciting time <clears throat> and an exciting time. So make sure you pick up one of those uh, sheets if you want to read it. Uh, thank you, Moira, for doing that. I appreciate that very much. So we're going to light our first candle here. And we're going to pray that it'll make it through the entire service. If not, we'll have a singe side of the greenery here. But um, we'll keep our eyes on it, okay? If you find a problem, come and throw some water on it. Or I'll try to blow it out. All right. And so we'll light one of the candles as uh, we get to each week. The next week we'll have two lit. And then the third one, the pink, is for the, the joy of the Lord again and the excitement. And, of course, the white one for Christ himself as we look forward to his coming. So 
How exciting. The only other more exciting time for me on the church calendar is Easter, is the actual resurrection of the Lord. Where would we be without his resurrection? All right, well, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. I wanted to stay with our series, and so uh, if you've not been with us, we're working our way verse by verse through the book of Matthew, and so we're starting chapter 12. Today I've titled the message, Jesus, Lord of Rest. Jesus is our Lord of Rest. So let's pray together, and then uh, we'll stand together and read his word. Father, it is really true that uh, for any true believer who pays attention to your word and believes all that you have done and who you are, this is a time of great excitement. Not just because we remember the birth the first time that you came and your great sacrifice. That's well enough. And we rejoice greatly over it. But Lord, how much our hearts really just beat with great anticipation for your second coming. Lord, our world is in such a a chaotic state and quite honestly has been since sin first entered the picture. What an awakening, what a revelation it's going to be for those who trust you for the time when you come again, but Lord, also for those who do not trust you and do not look to you as Lord and Savior, what a time of great devastation that will be as the prophet has just told us. Lord, as we enter into that time of the millennium, when that time does come and we return back with you, we won't teach through all of that, but we're thankful that there's going to be such a peace on this earth among your people like we've never experienced before. But for those that do not know you, there will be a time of great destruction. So, Lord, we pray always that you would rescue hearts, that you would open the minds of the blind, that you would use us to be your voices, to be uh, your action, your hands, your feet, and that we may be a part of your great work in rescuing souls. Thank you, Lord, that we have the privilege to worship you today. And we do count it just that, an honor and a privilege. And so we pray that you'd open our hearts, help us to hear, to learn, to discern rightly according to what you've revealed to us. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, let's stand in honor of God's word and let's read the first eight verses. I often put together way too much information. And so again, we're having to break this up uh, so your minds can absorb at least a little bit of it. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. But he said to them, have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who, uh, those who, excuse me, Those who, lost my place, which are not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, sorry, but for the priests alone. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and and are innocent? But I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. But if you'd known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. All right, you may be seated. 
You know, the older I get, there's a couple things that I am more and more aware of. One is my eyes don't work so well. <laughs> These little tools here work well when I need them to at times, but when I'm working on something, I don't know if you ever do mechanic work or not, ladies and men, but there's something about bifocals or these uh, progressives that do not let you look up very well. And sometimes when you're preaching, they don't let you read well. And so even though they're supposed to, I notice that I'm changing in a lot of ways is what I'm trying to say. One of the other notices that I'm aware of, one of the things I'm aware of is that I, I'm needing a lot more rest than I used to. I used to be able to operate pretty much off of about five and a half, six hours a day. Uh, yeah, tired, but I could push through. Uh, as I've gotten older, I hear in my mind one of my professors from seminary saying, I need about seven or eight hours of sleep. And I remember him saying that years ago, and I thought, that's ridiculous. Nobody needs that much sleep. And now I'm like, yeah, I can get that. I, I see that. I, I need that as much as anybody. Um, and so, again, I, I realize the necessity and the need for rest as much as anybody, uh, not just from the physical part, but even from the mental and emotional recuperation. Uh, you know, if you've lived this life at all, I know there's a lot of stressors out there. Uh, if you are a parent or a grandparent, you know that there was a day where you were so excited about your little one, and you still are. I want to make that clear, right? You're still excited about your little one who's become a big one. Um, but there were days where you were really enjoying the opportunity to rest. Uh, it's a funny thing, isn't it, about how kids, when they're little, they just can't wait to stay up, and they want to just be up late past their bedtime, and you as the parent are going, ay, ay, ay. I wish you would just go to bed so I can go to bed because life has a way of changing. Well, we experience these things and we understand that uh, life does cause us to change and we look for rest. And that's not uh, even to mention all the other pressures that come along with taking care of houses and property and, and uh, paying the bills and making sure that you're the kind of employee that you need to be. And you want to hold on to that job, right? Because you're looking at retirement hopefully one day. Or maybe you are and you're saying, gosh, I hope my job holds in there or hangs in there because I need my medical expenses paid and I need retirement to be there again if you want that, if you feel like that's what the Lord is leading you to. Uh, and on top of that, you've got all the pressures of everything else. And so you find yourself saying, boy, rest looks really good. I want rest more and more. Now, I say all that because it really does help us lead into something the Lord is wanting us to understand specifically about what real, real rest is and why he came. And so if you've been with us and you were part of our last chapter, you know we concluded with a couple things, and that was Jesus has now made himself very well known, or is at least in the process of making himself known as God, and especially God's only son. And because of that sonship, he has said to us at the end of chapter 11 that it is in him we will find our rest. Come to me. You remember he said that? Those of you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And those were just amazing words. And the reason they were amazing words is because the people of the day would have felt the weight of the legalistic leadership of the Jews at the time. They would have felt the burden that was being thrown upon them. And I'm going to read you something here in just a few minutes. It'll just make it so clear for you. Uh, but they were, they were feeling the, the burden of almost like an oppression, that they just couldn't be righteous enough, and, and they would never make it. Oh, if you're a religious leader, then yeah, you've made the team, but 
few people will probably never make it unless you're the elite spiritually. And so they felt the weight of all of this. And so last time, again, we concluded with Jesus saying, hey, I am of the Father. He is my Father, making himself deity. And it is through me that you will find your rest. Now, it's no accident, and Matthew now picks up on a situation that helps us to see Jesus display himself as the Lord of rest. And so that's where chapter 12 picks up in this beautiful illustration specifically over his lordship of the Sabbath, which was a big deal to the people of that time. Now, to help us understand this whole picture of what really Jesus is dealing with, you and I need to understand the context. And I'm partly giving you that right now. But to do so, I've outlined this particular section into four parts, two of which we'll look at today. The first one is Jesus is going to give us this amazing illustration. I say Jesus. Jesus is going to deal with it. Matthew gives it to us in his writing, a display of legalism at its worst. It's an unbelievable illustration of legalism. And then Jesus' shocking clarification of his lordship over the Sabbath, which will be through the remaining verses of what we just read. So the next two we'll talk about next time as we gather. But let's, let's jump into verses 1 and 2 and go back to the setting. Now, I've got to give you some academic things here a little bit for you to really understand what's being dealt with here. Verse 1, at that time, this is after everything we've just said from verse chapter 11 and, and before, Jesus went through the grain field. So I want you to get this picture in your mind of what this looks like on a Sabbath. And his disciples became hungry and began to pick the heads of grain and eat. Now, if you're just listening at all to what I just said a second ago and you've been paying attention to what we've learned over the last many weeks, you know that that causes uh, some real angst to start arising here. Notice verse 2. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples do what is not lawful to do on a Sabbath. Now, if you're not God, you're a Jew in the presence of these leaders, you're going to be swallowing pretty hard. Because you're going to know that God did, in fact, give the leaders and the people of Israel a commandment that on the seventh day of every week, they were to rest from their labors. And that commandment came as one of the Ten Commandments that Moses gave in Exodus chapter 20, where he says, Six days, this is from God, you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day, that's a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you and your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens of the earth, heavens and the earth, and the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And that Sabbath was an observance that was to be practiced, not only by Israel at large, but Jesus himself, because he was Jewish, and also his disciples. But this law of the Sabbath, and I hope you'll really stay with me on this, because this may be new for you as I explain this. This law of the Sabbath was only one of the Ten Commandments that was, or it was the only one that was a non-moral commandment. In other words, it was only ceremonial. 
meaning that the other nine commandments had lasting implications for man and his relationship with God. There was a very serious situation that would occur if man did not obey these things. You know what they are. You can go back to Exodus 20. Don't murder, don't steal, don't take somebody else's stuff, don't covet after another man's wife or his possessions, uh, don't idolize anyone other than the Lord himself. But this one in particular was only ceremonial in the sense that God wanted the people to remember what God had done on the seventh day, that he rested from his labors. And we're going to talk about that more, but just understand that at this, this particular point. This law was unique to Israel for all the reasons that I just said, and also because it was a reminder, again, of what God had done as he rested in creation, which was a good thing according to what we read from the context in Moses' law and everything that we read even back in Genesis. It was a good thing that God was doing. What they didn't understand, though, and we'll get to get this again in just a few minutes, what they didn't understand was God was doing something far greater in what he was saying in the Sabbath rest. He was pointing to someone particularly greater. Okay, not greater than him, but greater than what the rest was representing, at least to the people at the time. In fact, when Jesus came, the observance of that rest period ended. Okay, just digest that for a second. When Jesus came, the observance of that commandment ended. And it ended because, again, the Sabbath was only a way for God to point to his son. It was a way for God to point to Christ that in his son is where real rest comes from. The rest that God offers to all people when Jesus gave his life as the payment for sin, which was the appeasement of God's anger and justice and vengeance, if you will, against unrighteousness. When Jesus came and gave his life, there was no need for God to be appeased anymore through the workings of the law. God had satisfied himself through what his son had done. Now, what that means for us today is, and again, I hope you'll hear this carefully because some people get greatly offended by some of these things, especially if you have any ties to what I'm going to say. Judaism as a viable religion, as a religion in its religious form, ceased to exist when Christ died on the cross. Now, I did not say that Jews ceased to exist, that they stopped being a people group. Paul made that very clear in the book of Romans, if you read Romans. And they still are God's people because they still have the promise of salvation to them just like they, anyone else does. In fact, they were the ones who were given the promise of the kingdom first. You and I are the beneficiaries of the promise of the kingdom because of their rejection of Christ as the Messiah. So God has still not rejected them in the sense of calling them his uh, promised people, but the requirements of the law that they were to adhere to and the sacrifices and the ordinances are no longer necessary, again, because of everything that I just said. Because the final sacrifice that the law originally pointed to had been accomplished. Now, 
all Jews, just like everybody else, are to turn to Christ as the high priest who is the only high priest who could satisfy God and the only one who could offer the real rest. If you read the book of Hebrews, and I'll quote a couple things here in just a minute, the book of Hebrews very clearly says that the earthly high priest had no ability to do all that Christ can do and all that Christ does do. Why? Because he was just human. And so every day he had to continually do the same thing that God prescribed because the human priest was not able to forgive sins forever, but the Son of God is able to do that. All of which is why in chapter 11 of Hebrews, verse 6, we read, without faith it is impossible to please him. Notice God says nothing in the New Testament about keeping the law. He says everything about faith, for he who comes to God must what? Keep the law? No, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So what we have in the Old Testament is God giving a series of laws that were right. We'll see that in a minute from Paul as he makes that clear, but all with the idea of pointing to something better and specifically, as I've already said, pointing to someone better. Which again is why now, as we come back to this particular law that the disciples are getting in trouble over and Jesus is getting in trouble over, is not a command that we need to follow today. The other nine, yes. They are moral obligations that we have to one another and to God. And so those laws transcend time. They have no bearing or influence on what was and what hasn't but because they affect each of us in, in ways that keep us from being all that God wants us to be. But this particular one, again, the Sabbath, was a law that was given so that God could point to his son who was to come to be our rest internally. Now, with that understanding, let's make sure that we're clear about this. In the context of the letter of Matthew, in Jesus' day, his role had not been fulfilled yet as the Savior and the sacrifice for sins. That's coming. But when Matthew records this, that has not happened. And so the Jewish law was very much still in force. Now the problem, in addition to all of that, with this setting and the law, is like with any laws in, that are in place, the human mind often doesn't know how to address what I like to call the gray areas of life. In other words, you can institute laws as parents or grandparents or even in the world out here that help us live within the context of humanity and the framework of righteous living, if you want to put it that way. But often there are laws that don't cover the gray areas. Those times where we just kind of scratch our head a little bit and say, hmm, what do I do in this situation? For example, we all know about the speed limit laws out there. This is always a fun one to think about. You ride down the road and you see the big black numbers that say 60 or 65 or 70 or 35 or 25 or whatever. But because of your situation, you see the sign and you say, well, I'm late or I'm sick. I got to get to the doctor. Or I've got to pick up my wife. I can't leave the kids at school late. And so I'll just push this a little bit and it'll be okay because after all, the law says do this, but they don't understand my kids are in trouble. And so we make some allowances. We create some gray areas. Well, the problem with that is when we start creating gray areas is we cause a lot of confusion for ourselves. And that's what was happening to the Jews. They had this law of the Sabbath given to them, but they didn't understand the full implications in every way that it would cause 
problems for them in life, and so they created a lot of traditions, things that helped them live comfortably within side of what the law said according to keeping this day of rest. For example, one part of the Talmud, which is a commentary on the Jewish traditions, or basically a compilation of traditions that are based off of these gray areas of the law, one of them specified that the basic limit, and this is all about Sabbath laws, okay? So we're just on that subject. The basic limit for travel was 3,000 feet from one's house. Now, there's nothing in the law of God that describes this. And so you begin to see the, the grayness of it. But variation, ex, various expect, exceptions were provided. For example, if you had placed some food within 3,000 feet of your house, you could go there to eat it. And because the food was considered an extension of the house, you could then go another 3,000 feet beyond the food. If a rope were placed across an adjoining street or alley, the building on the other side as well as the alley between could be considered part of your house. Certain objects could be lifted up and put down only from and to certain places. Other things could be lifted up from a public place and set down in a private one and vice versa. Still others could be picked up in a wide place and put down in a legally free place, but rabbis could not agree about the meaning of wide and free. Imagine that. <clears throat> Under Sabbath regulations, a Jew could not carry a load heavier than a dried fig, but if an object weighed half that amount, he could carry it twice. Eating restrictions were among the most detailed and extensive. You could eat nothing larger than an olive, and even if you tasted half an olive, found it to be rotten and spit it out, that half was considered to have been eaten as far as allowance was concerned. Throwing an object into the air with one hand and catching it with the other was prohibited. If the Sabbath overtook you as you reached for some food, the food was to be dropped before drawing your arm back, lest you be guilty of carrying a burden. Tailors did not carry a needle with them on the Sabbath for fear that they might be tempted to mend a garment and thereby perform work. Nothing could be bought or sold, and clothing could not be dyed or washed. A letter could not be dispatched, even by the hand of a Gentile. No fire could be lit or extinguished, including fire for a lamp, although a fire already lit could be used within certain limits. For that reason, some Orthodox Jews, and those are the people who held to the very strictest part of the law, today use automatic timers to turn on lights in their homes well before the Sabbath begins. Otherwise, they might forget to turn them on in time and have to spend the night in the dark. Baths could not be taken for fear some of the water might spill on the floor and wash it. Chairs could not be moved because dragging them might make a furrow in the ground, and a woman was not to look in a mirror lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. You could carry ink enough to draw only two letters of the alphabet, and false teeth could not be worn because they exceeded the weight limit for burdens. According to those hair-splitting regulations, a Jew could not pull off even a handful of grain to eat on the Sabbath unless he were starving. Now hold on to that which, of course, is often a difficult thing to determine how do you know whether somebody's starving or not and would be cause for considerable differences of opinion. If a person became ill on the Sabbath, only enough treatment could be given to keep him alive. Treatment to make him improve was declared to be work and therefore forbidden. To determine just how much food, medicine, or bandaging would be necessary to keep a person alive and no more was itself an impossible burden, 
Among many other forbidden Sabbath activities were sowing, plowing, reaping, grinding, baking, threshing, binding sheaves, winnowing, sifting, dyeing, shearing, spinning, kneading, separating or weaving two threads, tying or untying a knot, and sewing two stitches. Now that's just a sample of the burden that people were living through under this one commandment of God that the, that the religious legalists began to establish as law because they didn't really know how to fit the gray areas. So you can imagine if you're a Jew living in the day, the blessing that God had intended for this day of rest became anything but a day of rest. It became probably more frustrating and full of anxiety than it did anything else because the law of God was being violated and there was nothing you could do about it unless you just sat in your chair and then that might be a problem. And so I give you all of that because you have to understand the pressure that was on the Jewish people and help you to see why there's a problem when Jesus is in the field with his disciples. So with all that background now, you get the picture in your mind of Jesus is with the disciples doing just that, and it's the Sabbath day. The problem was the disciples were hungry. That creates a real issue. Just because the law is there doesn't mean the stomach doesn't get hungry. So what do you do about that? Well, we're told that the Lord gives them permission to eat. Well, why does he do that? Well, because also in the law, in Deuteronomy 23, there was the allowance for entering into a grain field and eating. In verse 25, Moses would write, when you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. So don't think that the Lord was violating some law. He wasn't. He was not pushing away the commandments that his father had put through him. He was very much lifting those up. In fact, Jesus would say, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. And so be careful that you're not tempted to think that, oh, Jesus is just ignoring the law. No, he wasn't. He was interpreting it uh, properly. It was the Jewish legalists that were missing the point. And that becomes really the whole key of this situation. So now that's the first part of it. Now Jesus wants to help these guys as God. He wants them to understand. And so he gives two illustrations beginning in verse 3. And so he says to them, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions? How he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. Now, basically, in my mind, I hear Jesus saying, guys, you're good Hebrews. You have studied through Hebrew school, and surely you know this particular story, right? You kind of hear Jesus rebuking them a little bit on this. He's referring to a time when King David, and they couldn't deny who David was. King David was the beloved leader of Israel. But it was a time when David was running from King Saul, and David's men were starving. And so David, out of great concern for his men, and this is the important point, so hear this part. Out of great concern for his faithful servants, if I could put it that way, David went into the temple, and he says to Ahimelech, who is the high priest, Give me some of the bread or give me some bread for my men. Ahimelech says, I don't have any bread. David says, what about the showbread right there? Now, if you know the showbread, the showbread was the bread that was required by God to be there for the priest alone as a 
way to represent the bread of life or that God is a sustaining God of life. And it was a memorial that was done regularly. Every day, the bread, the 12 loaves representing the 12 tribes had to be placed on the table. And God said that's reserved for the priests. In this case, though, David's men are starving. And so he says to the priests, look, this is food. My men need food. Let's have it. And so Ahimelech gives in and he gives them the bread. Now, the point that Jesus is making out of all of this is that God didn't discipline David for doing that. And he didn't discipline the priest, even though he had very specifically said, this is what it's for and this is who it's to be reserved for. And that's because David knew that God has always been more concerned about the welfare of those who love him than he is just about his people keeping his laws. And that's a key point. He is much more concerned about his people getting what they need for their daily lives, whether it be physical or spiritual, than he is just people holding on to the adherence of his laws. Now, that's not saying the same for those who don't care about God and don't want to follow him. Those people who care nothing about the things of God and living righteously are already under the condemnation of God. In fact, the laws of God in the Old Testament only require one thing of the people who disregard him as God, that is death. In fact, God would require that of every soul. Every soul that sins, what Leviticus says, must die, right? And so God says, for those people, though, who have seen me for who I am and they put their hope in me and their trust in me and they want to follow and obey me in this life, then I'm concerned about their provisions. I will provide for them in whatever way they need to have their provisions made. And David understood that. And so we could say that God's laws were in place not to drive people away from God or to create some burden, but to drive people to God. That's really what the purposes of the law have been all about so that you and I would see our sin and repent and come to the Lord to find the rest that only he can offer to us. In fact, Paul would say almost something just this way when he wrote the letter to the churches in the Galatian region, beginning in chapter 3, verse 23, he says, before faith came, in other words, we're no longer under the law, and you understand the context of Galatians, we're no longer under the law, now we're under faith, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus." In other words, Paul's very clearly saying, hey, listen, you Hebrews, those of you who are followers of the law, there's one reason for the law. It was to point you to Jesus. That word tutor, if you go back and stutter it, it's like a schoolmaster. Some of your translations may say this. It's the person who is there to help you understand and to be the one who gets you through the educational process. Well, that's what Paul's saying the law was. The purpose of the law was not to condemn you. The purpose of the law was to lead you to the righteousness that God really wants you to live under. But once Christ came, now remember Paul's writing to the churches later after Christ has already come and resurrected. Once Christ did his work, 
then there was no reason for the law because Christ had fulfilled everything that God had said the law couldn't do. And so Jesus says now, back to the context here, if God was willing to let David have the sanctified bread for his men from the temple, then surely he's going to allow my people to have food for their stomachs from an ordinary crop out in some random field when they need food. But the legalist had said, oh, too bad. You can't have that because it's the Sabbath. And Jesus says, you don't understand. Now, from that, he gives another illustration. Verse 5, have you not read in the law? Interesting how the Lord does this. You want to uphold the law? Let's talk about the law. Have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Now, this is an easy one. This is a really easy one because the legalist would have known the priests work harder than anybody on the Sabbath. If you'd ever been to the temple, you would know that it was his job to not only offer the sacrifices day after day after day, which was a bloody mess and a laborious mess. If you've ever been in a butcher shop, a friend of mine was in school to become a butcher. That is a long, difficult process and very hard work to do. But these people had no uh, common uh, help with machinery and and that kind of thing. And this was all done by hand. They would have to kill it. They would dress it, light the fires, take care of the utensils. It was a laborious task for the priests. But because he was a priest, he had to perform all the prescribed rituals on the Sabbath. In other words, the Sabbath law didn't apply to him. How could it? It was anything but a day of rest which the Lord points to as an illustration, specifically saying that if it's okay for the priest to have broken the law under certain circumstances, then that must mean God doesn't hold the Sabbath as an absolute. And this is part of what he wants to say. And the truth of the matter is, beloved, when I think personally about this, if God still intends for everybody to observe the Sabbath as a time of rest, then what about me? What about Pastor Ham? What about the rest of you who work so hard on Sundays to make us have the opportunity to to worship? If you're a Sunday school teacher or running the sound like Christian and Ron are doing right now or anybody else, Sunday is nothing close to a day of rest. Just two weeks ago, pretty normal Sundays really, uh, I preached two Sunday morning messages, skedaddled out of here and ran to Lynchburg for about two hours to visit with a family member who is an extended family member who is on their, their last days and then came back to another service at 5 o'clock and preached again. And uh, I can tell you, that's not a restful day. And so the point becomes, what's that all about? <clears throat> you either have to make up tradition that says a preacher in the New Testament doesn't need to rest on Sunday, or you think like a lot of people that Sunday's not a day of work for the preacher anyway. And I've had people tell me that. I've literally had people say to me, I don't look at you as working on Sunday. I just look at you as being kind of here like the rest of us. And I feel like saying, man alive, join me on a Sunday one day then. Now, I'm not complaining unless to get just a little sympathy from you. But I'm just simply saying, if you hold to a Sabbath rest, what's okay and what's not okay on a Sunday? And by the way, The Jewish Sabbath wasn't on a Sunday anyway. It was on a Saturday. 
So then we got to start talking to our Seventh-day Adventist friends who hold on to the Sabbath real tightly and start asking some questions about that. Well, the issue is, where do you draw the line? I had a pastor friend say that when he was growing up, it was sky's the limit on all that you could eat from what mom fixes on a Sunday afternoon. Gorge yourself to death. But you couldn't read the funny papers. Okay? So how do you decide? You see, there are gray areas here that man takes a lot of liberty on, and we really do the same thing. Well, the line comes in understanding that the laws were to show what we've already talked about, and that is nobody's able to keep the laws perfectly. You can't do it. And that's because we're sinful. But the good news is there's someone coming, in this case when Matthew's writing this, who will ease their burden and take away the sinfulness who is Jesus, and that's who Jesus is promoting himself to be now. And we'll see this in just a second even more clearly. Who has paid or will, up to this point, will soon pay the redemption price so man can have the rest that God was pointing to all along. Which is exactly what Jesus is leading them to when he says, verse 7, if you'd known what this means, and now he gives the Old Testament mean, uh, verse, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice you'd not have condemned the innocent. So again, he's taking the leaders to school here, and he's saying, if you really understood all that you say you understand, then you would understand very clearly what I'm telling you here. Basically, you've totally missed the point of the Sabbath law. Now, that would be a revelation. You don't understand anything of what the Sabbath law is really all about. You're mostly concerned about what you get and what you can fulfill instead of understanding what God really intended. Secondly, if you did understand anything about who I am, you would see that love is a better way than anything a law can do, which again, the law is only there to point out man's fault. The truth is, beloved, as I've already said, people are already condemned. What people need is the knowledge of grace and mercy. I'm not saying excusing sin. If you've listened to me over the years, you know that. We're not talking about that because God doesn't excuse sin. You heard that in the Isaiah 11 passage. You can't have a Jesus who is just all love and grace and mercy without being a God who is full of judgment and conviction of sin to lead us to righteousness. That's where our world is. Our world wants a Jesus who is just all lovey-dovey, but they'll leave out the parts of his righteousness. And so don't hear that. Jesus is certainly not saying that. I'm not saying that. What Jesus is simply saying is that, look, I came to rescue people before I must enact judgment. You have burdened man more instead of helping him to see me for who I really am. That's really his point. And now he clarifies all of this in verse 8 by saying, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Boy, talking about weighty words. Talking about getting somebody all fired up. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, as Lord of the Sabbath... It's my law. And if I want to keep it, I'll keep it. If I don't want to keep it, I won't keep it. I can break it or I can completely do away with it if I want to. Jesus was fully within his rights. Now again, remember, we've already learned that Jesus was not violating any of his commandments. He was living out the purity of the commandments. It was the people who had gotten so messed up. And that's you and me today. We're the ones who create legalistic tendencies to fit people into a box 
instead of teaching them about grace and mercy and love and the defining parameters of the box so that the box becomes the place where we live life instead of controlling life. How many of you all have grown up in homes where you felt the legalistic weight of what you can and can't do and never really understood the whys? Well, that happens when we're younger. But true righteousness comes when parents and grandparents begin to share the parameters of the box so that the child understands why the parameters of the box are there. The Jewish legalist said, here's the box, get in it. And that became life. And the people couldn't live under that kind of life. You may feel that weight is what I'm saying, that you've been taught so many years, even as an adult, here's the box, get in there. And if you don't live in this box, God is just ready to whop you over the head with a big stick until you conform. And the Lord Jesus said, no, look, you're already condemned. I came to give you life. And more particularly in this context, I came to give you the rest that you really want. But you've got to submit to me. You've got to surrender your life to me. Now, for those of you who may struggle, and there are many people who really struggled with this adherence to the Sabbath, just in case there's any confusion, let me read to you from Hebrews 4. So God will clarify what he's talking about. And you have to understand linear time here for a second. Go back in the Old Testament. I should do it this way because you're reading that way. Go back in time and understand God institutes a law through Moses to say that I want you to remember that on the seventh day I rested. Now, did God need to rest? No. Why did he rest? Ever thought about that? Why does an eternal, all-powerful, holy God need anything about rest? He doesn't need to rest. So what was he doing? He was pointing to something. It was a sign. The sign of his son's coming. So in the Old Testament, he builds the law of the Sabbath in order for people to see that there's a better day coming. You can't enter into this rest on your own. This is my rest. This is my doing. Only I can provide you the rest that you so desperately want. But it will come, and it will come through my son. Watch this in Hebrews 4. There remains a Sabbath rest. How about that? God didn't do away with it. For the people of God, for the one who has entered, notice the capital H, his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. What's he saying? Same thing I was just saying. As we enter into Jesus, as we give ourselves to him as our Lord and master, the savior of our souls, we enter into the rest that we really want all along, which is eternal, internal rest. So he says, therefore, if you understand that, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. In other words, the religionists, the legalists led so many people away into a false understanding of what the Sabbath was all about. Don't be like that. Don't fall into that trap. Here I am, the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the God of rest. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're probably thinking, so what about Sunday then? What are we doing here today? Well, Sunday is the day of worship. It is the day of worship because it was the day the Lord was resurrected. And so the early church, after the resurrection of Christ, began to gather on the first day of the week, which is what today is, to remember 
what Jesus had done as the resurrected Christ. And so we are free people, no longer under the bondage of sin and law and the burden of all of that or any of man's requirements, but we're free to follow our Lord to come worship him openly because he has made the way for us to have access to the Father. Which is why Paul would write to the Jewish people who are still struggling with some of this, how do we balance this? He writes in Colossians 2, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food. Now he's talking about the law of ceremony, festivals, a new moon, or a Sabbath day. Things which were a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. What's he saying? If we translated that our way, we would say all of these festivals, these new moons, the Sabbath law, it just pointed to the fulfillment of all of it who is in Christ or who is Christ. That's what Paul is saying. So we gather because that's when the early church gathered. But we understand now, we don't come on a Sunday or not do something on a Sunday because we're observing some law. We rest in Christ, and so we do whatever we need to do, even on a Sunday. Why? Because no one day is more holy than another. When Jesus is in our hearts, every day is holy unto the Lord. Amen? But we do set aside the one day so we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together and in honor of who Christ is and what he's done. And so really every moment of our life should be a heart full of love and devotion, a living out of all that the Lord had said in mercy and grace, in our work, in our conversation, in our relationships, wherever we go, whatever we do, we are to remember that God is our rest. We don't need to look for something else to provide the rest that only God can do. And once we surrender to him, we find that it is only in Jesus that we find everything that we need. Folks, listen. And please forgive me if I step on your toes here, but I'm not against the attempts of man to give us what we need in this life. You know, if you've known me, uh, I'm a big proponent in counseling I think that's so helpful. I'm, I'm thankful for modern medicines. But listen, no counselor, no doctor, no prescription can give you the rest that only Christ can give you. Don't get lost in the things of man thinking that that's where you'll find what you really want, which is, is the perpetual, never-ending rest of the soul. Just be wise and don't buy everything that somebody tells you to buy thinking that's going to be the magic bullet, so to speak. But confess your sin and trust the Lord Jesus, which is why, now let's go back to eleven twenty-eight, and I'll finish with this. Jesus says, now you understand better. Come to me. Come to me. What? All who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll do what? I'll give you rest. Why? Because I am Lord over the rest. I am Lord over the Sabbath. Amen? All right. Father, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, because of the clarity of your word, Lord, the freeing power of your word, the truth of your word, 
Lord, if we, if we took a poll right now in this room and of those listening online and just asked the simple question of what people want most, if they were honest and they really thought through it, they would say, I just want peace. I want my soul to be at rest. Millions of dollars are spent, medications, counseling, as I said, purchases. Lord, we look at our world right now through this whole pandemic and the world is so bored, it's gravitating towards everything to find some kind of meaning. When everything that has meaning, lasting meaning, is found right here in Jesus. So Lord, may we be people who display for our watching world what it means to be at peace, even in our struggles, even in the things that we don't understand, even in the things that frustrate us in our humanness. Lord, may we be 